Well, it feels good to be back with you. Thank you for letting me have a, a month off, and it was fruitful. I submitted a draft of my dissertation to my advisors. I'll still have a lot of work to do, but uh, it was good, good restful time, and I am excited about being back. Oh, one more kind of housekeeping thing. Just I want you to answer some questions in your mind. I thought about doing a show of hands, but I think I won't do that here. How many people, just to answer this in your mind, think that, that you would like your prayer life to improve? How many people wouldn't mind missing an hour of sleep for that to happen on Sunday mornings? And then how many people will be here next week for the prayer Sunday school classes, both Steve's in here and uh, the one that Dawn is leading upstairs? Just think about that in your mind. They're good classes, and we are learning a lot, and just want to encourage you, if you want to grow in prayer, consider coming out for that. Well, this morning, we are beginning a new series uh, on the book of Psalms. Uh, The book of Psalms is, I think, without question, one of the most precious parts of the whole Bible for many people. I know firsthand that this book has been a major source of comfort for me. Uh, I I know that, uh, in fact, even I could catalog the various difficult times in my life according to the various psalms that God has used in my life during those times. So, for instance, in college, a difficult time I think of as the Psalm 37 time. And when we were returning from uh, overseas work in, uh, in Asia, it was a difficult time. And Psalm 63 is what sort of hangs over that time for me. as the psalm that God used to encourage me. And I'm sure if we talked uh, this morning, you, you guys could all share various psalms that have been important for you in your life. Why do the psalms offer so much help and encouragement? Well, I would submit to you that it's because they do not merely give you the truth. They lead you in the experience of the truth. Now, all of the Bible does that to some extent. None of it, nothing in here is merely academic. All of it leads us to experience. But the Psalms are are particularly weighted on the application. Let me give you an analogy for how to understand this. Let's imagine that um, the Psalms are one... Well, I'm sorry. Let's imagine that the entire people of God in the Old Testament could be thought of as one person. And would you uh, please open your Bibles to the table of contents with me? I'm going to work through the books and show you how this works. Let's imagine that, that everything recorded here in the Old Testament we could represent as one person. Opening up to the table of contents. Okay, so this is one person. The book of Genesis, the first book there, that's the birth narrative. That's how this person came into existence. God created him. He's dependent upon God. The next book, Exodus there, that's the story of this person coming to age where God rescues him out of slavery. And now this person is not only dependent upon God for his creation, but also dependent upon God for deliverance. And then do you see those books, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? Well, guess what they do? They talk about the various rules and promises that govern this person's life. 
Here's where we read what God swears he will do for this person and what this person must do in return and what happens if the person doesn't do it. And then if you notice, the books of Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and even Ezra, Nehemiah, and, and Esther, all of those books are the books of history. Here's where we see how the person actually lived. Did they believe God's promises? Did they do what God has called them to do? Here's the person's actual history. And then if you skip down, you see the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then a lot of the books at the end, which if you look at the page numbers, you'll notice are very short. Well, those books are God's assessment on how this person actually lived. What does God think about their life? And then if you notice, right about at the, begin, at the very middle is the book of Psalms. And here's what the Psalms are like, assuming this is a one person. The Psalms are this person's personal diary. Here's where this person, out of the context of the rules and promises that govern his life, out of the context of the living God, in relationship with the living God, here's where this person records his innermost thoughts and feelings and struggles and ups and downs and sorrows and joys, fears and hopes. He records them all in light of who God is and in light of God's promises and God's rules that guide him. Now, let's say, again, imagining the old whole Testament is one person here. Let's say you want to get a handle on this person's life. Oh, what books would be most important to you? Well, that all depends on what you want to know. If you want to understand sort of the bare-bones history of this person, well, then obviously the books like Samuel and Kings and Chronicles describe this person's life would be most important. But if you want to get... What makes this person tick? If you want to understand this person's passion, their heartbeat, their joys, what they're living for, what they're afraid of, what motivates them, well, then the Psalms is where you want to go. You want to know their diary. And and in that same way, I think you could make an argument that the Psalms are really most essential to understanding what the whole Bible is actually about. Now, we need the other parts of the Bible in order to give a context for the Psalms. But with that context in place, the Psalms provide a key for understanding how everything else in the Bible ought to be experienced. And guess what? If you're a Christian, then the experience recorded in the Psalms describes not just the experience of some ancient people way back then, but it is your experience. It is your diary. This is for you. The Psalms are there to lead you, not only to the knowledge of the truth, but to the experience of the truth. And friends, my prayer for us as a church, as we go through the Psalms, and not only my prayer, but what what Steve and the deacons are praying as well, is that we would not only grow in our understanding of the knowledge of God, we would grow in our experience of that. We would grow in being more conformed to the pattern of living, and indeed the pattern of feeling, that God intends for his people. You see, the reality is we are emotional beings. God made us that way. And we live in a real world where we experience joy and deep sorrow. There are times of great peace. There are times of rage. There are times when we feel like we fit perfectly in community. And there are times where we feel so utterly and completely alone. And in all of those times, we need the Psalms. Because the Psalms tell us how we should respond in reference to God 
with God's rules and God's promises in all those times. And friends, I think this may not, in some Christian circles, be appreciated enough. That Christianity is not about repressing our emotions. It's not about flattening out your personality so that you can better live a stoic life. Because, friends, a stoic life is not real godliness. Christianity is about your emotions being shaped according to God's word so that you can live the kind of life that God intended you to live. See, I think a lot of people go in one or two extremes. Either they think that that our emotions rule us and we have no other option but to submit to them. This is Woody Allen's famous phrase, the heart wants what the heart wants in order to justify his immorality. Or they think your job is to kill your emotions so you won't feel anything at all. Emily Dickinson said, the heart wants what the heart wants or it doesn't care. But the Bible presents a third option. Your emotions are ruled by God's word. You become a person who feels things deeply, but you feel things in ways that are appropriate to the reality that is described in God's word. So, I want to plead with you. Don't just approach our Sunday morning time, especially when we're going through the Psalms, as a time where you will merely grow in knowledge. Approach Sunday morning as a time where you will grow in knowledge and then in experience with the truth, that you will then also experience it throughout the week. We encourage you here to read the passage of Scripture before you come to Sunday morning. And if you haven't been doing that, maybe make, uh, make it a priority to start doing that. If you haven't opened your Bibles in a while, why not start this week? Why not start today? Later this evening, reread the sections that we're going to look at today. Read some of the Psalms and pray about the truth you see there. Okay, that was the introduction to our series on the Psalms. And now, if you will, turn to Psalm 1 and 2. If you're still at the page table of contents, you'll know exactly where that is. Psalms 1 and 2. And these Psalms, I think, are an introduction, really, to all the rest of them. Let me begin by reading Psalms 1 and 2. And I'll just read them as if they're one unit together, because I think they are. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, 
As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Lord, we ask that you would cause us to see the truth that you've put in here, the truth that you've intended not only to give us new information, but to have an effect upon our hearts and our lives. Lord, we know that your word accomplishes its purpose. So, Lord, we pray that it would accomplish that very purpose that you intend for it too in our lives today. Lord, cause us to be people who love you, who delight in your word, who forsake your wrath by trusting in Christ. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see, and hearts that love your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the time that it's remaining, what I want us to do is see three themes that emerge in these two psalms, and I want to connect those themes with the rest of the Bible, or the rest of the book of Psalms, rather. Sorry. Theme number one, the reality of evil. The reality of evil. Evil is real. Look at the very beginning of this psalm. Blessed is the man, or Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not walk where? in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. What does that assume? It assumes that there are wicked sinners scoffing in the world, right? Look at Psalm 2. The nations rage. The peoples plot. They don't want God to lord over them. And what we have in Psalm 2 described is full-scale rebellion. See, the Psalms are honest with the fact that there is evil in this world and that we cannot ignore it. Psalm 13 asks the question, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Psalm 140, preserve me, O God, from violent men. There are enemies out there. Some of us are isolated from them, and therefore these passages don't resonate quite as well. Others of us here know exactly what this means. Some of us have been horribly abused. Violent men have a name and a face. The Psalms tell you that you are not alone. God understands. But as we go through the Psalms, another truth comes out so very clear, and that is that not only is there evil out there, there is evil in here, in our own hearts. King David says, he confesses, in sin my mother conceived me. What he means there is that from the moment that he was in his mother's womb, his inclination has been to do evil. And later the psalmist prays, O Lord, if you counted iniquity, that is sin, who would stand? The psalms divide the world into two categories, the good and the evil. And then those, though, who are in the category of the good, if they're honest, have to admit that at the end of the day, they too are bad. They too are evil. The thoughts and intentions of their heart are not good. Friends, there is evil in this world. 
The Psalms are honest with the evil both inside of us and outside of us. But they give us a perspective that allow us neither to shut our eyes to it nor throw up our hands in despair. And for that, they are most helpful for today. You need the Psalms for that reason. Second theme, the authority of God through his word. The authority of God through his word. Look there at Psalm 1, verse 2, or 1 and 2, and notice the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. It might surprise you. So let's look at that verse again. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the, sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, what we might expect the psalmist to describe next is that the righteous man is following in the way of the righteous. Right? He's standing with the righteous, sitting with the righteous. But no, that's not what he says. Look at what he says. His delight is in the law of the Lord. You see, the decisive factor as to whether or not someone is on the good side or the bad side has to do chiefly with how they respond to the law of God. And notice, too, that this response is not merely putting yourself under the word of God, obeying it, submitting to it, but actually delighting in it, making the law their joy, wanting the law more than they want anything else. You see, at the end of the day, there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who stand in the way of sinners and sit in the seat of scoffers, following after them. And there are those who delight themselves in God's law, God's holy law. And they want God to rule their lives. They want his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, all his perfections embedded in their lives. What kind of person are you? Well, some of you might be thinking, but I would really rather there be a third option, right? Something in between? However, if we look at Psalm 2, we see that that cannot be the case. Psalm 2 talks about God establishing his king as the Lord over all. Look there at verse 6. Psalm 2, verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Here is the absolute king, and it's God. God is the king. He is the one to whom all must submit and whom all will submit. And friends, get this. It is that very law issued by this king that the blessed man delights in. The law that the blessed man delights in is not simply a collection of wise sayings that people could take or leave, whether or not they found useful, It is the command of the absolute king, the one to whom all people owe their absolute allegiance. God has spoken this law. He has issued it as the binding reality for all people in all times and all places. But there are those who do not want him to be king. They say in verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. Friends, that's the polar opposite of delighting in the law of God. They don't want God's authority. And they're determined to fight him every way they can. And because God is the all-sovereign one, it is total war. Because there is no realm in which God's sovereign goodness does not extend, there is no place where this war does not rage. The theme that is repeated, this is repeated all throughout the Psalms. The wicked are again and again described as those who are in every way opposed to God and who do not listen to his word. 
The fool has said in his heart, there is no God, Psalm 50. And God's people are described again and again as those who embrace his word. Psalm 19, which many of you women heard yesterday. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm. All of them are righteous. Or Psalm 119 asks the question, how can a young man keep his way pure? And the answer is, by guarding it according to your word. Lord willing, we will look at Psalm 119 in more detail later, and we will see that it is really an extended meditation on all that the word of God does in a believer's life. The word guides us, comforts us, heals us, keeps us from being put to shame, guards us from unnecessary fears, strengthens us, and imparts life to us. It gives us salvation. Friends, the Word of God is the vehicle by which God as King accomplishes His plans. And therefore, you cannot be neutral to His Word. If you leave your Bibles on the shelf, pay no attention to them, or if you consider coming to church and hearing God's word utterly optional, you are saying to the king, along with the people in Psalm 2, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. God rules us through his word. So not to listen to his word is to rebel against him and fight against him. And this psalm tells us clearly that you will not succeed. You will eventually hear his word. All your fighting against God will not make you any less at his disposal. He will call you, and you will answer. And that brings us to the third theme. That is God's judgment and salvation. The person who delights in the law of God is blessed. Then it says there in verse 3, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. We like that passage. This, is great. this describes great blessing. This describes reward. And this is to be expected because if the word of God is life-giving, then those who delight in it will have life. The natural consequence of immersing ourselves, immersing our lives in God's word is that we will flourish. We get life. We aren't discouraged. We live the kind of Christian life that God meant us to live. We have peace. Now, you have to read the rest of the Psalms to understand what this looks like. It doesn't mean that everything will always be sunny. I mean, there is the valley of the shadow of death. But even as you walk through that valley, you have nothing to fear. Psalm 37 says that though he falls, he will not be hurled headlong. And that means that even if we fail, even if we fall, if we are tied to God's word, we won't be devastated. We will be in one piece, and God will be there to pick us up. But, this psalm tells us, the wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Think about the the converse there, the the opposition. The opposite of a green tree that bears luscious fruit is a dry weed that disperses with the gush of the wind. And friends, that's what the wicked are like. 
They have no source of life, no deep roots into anything solid. They will wither and they will die. You see, a a principle woven all throughout the Bible and seen very clearly in the Psalms is that we become like what we worship. You worship God as he's revealed in his word and you become like him. That is fruitful, good, a source of life to others. You worship your own fleeting, insignificant strength, your perceived strength anyway, and you become fleeting and insignificant. You worship what is true, you become true. You worship what is false, you become false. Well, in light of that, friends, what do we need as a church that we, that we can have something to offer others? What do we need in order to be a community that can really care for one another? The answer is, we need to give ourselves to the Word of God so that we'll be fruitful for others. And friends, let me just add that I think this would be a particular area, maybe the next area that we need to grow in as a church. I think there's lots of good things here, but what I see in us is a group of people who desperately wants to care for each other, but doesn't always have the resources to do it. Do you want the resources to do it? It means going to God's Word, immersing ourselves in God's Word so we become fruitful, that we have something to give. And I don't mean just, well, we know the right answer to their question. No, I mean that we are living a life in God's presence, filled with His Spirit, knowing Him and loving Him, that the words we speak to others are life-giving. So men who are aspiring to be elders... Give yourselves to the study of God's Word. Parents who want to help their children, the best thing you can give to your children is to immerse yourself in the study of God's Word. Husbands and wives, drink deeply on God's Word so that you can care for each other when the other is dry. As single men and women, how do you become someone who will benefit your future spouse? Devote yourselves to the study of God's Word. You feast on God's Word, and you have life. Life for yourself, and life to pass on to others. You feast on anything else that does not have eternal value, and you die. And you pass on that to others. And see, part of the judgment and salvation that we see here in these Psalms is really just the natural consequence of whether or not you are giving yourselves to the Word of God. You do, you live, you don't, you wither and die. But that's not the totality of the judgment and salvation we see here. Psalm 1 says that it will not go well for the wicked in judgment. And then we see that judgment more particularly in Psalm 2. Notice Psalm 2 verse 5. Then he, that is the king, will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. That's a hard passage. Let me just read it again so it sinks into us. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. This is, this is an absolutely sovereign king. He has the right to do this. Those who rebel against this king have rebelled against God, and they deserve his wrath. One theology teacher, John Murray, explains this well. And I've put the quote on PowerPoint. Matthew, could you go ahead and click the next slide? See if it appears there. Yes, great, it does. Listen to this quote. 
I think he gets it right, speaking about the necessity of God's judgments. In the last analysis, sin is always against God. The essence of sin is to be against God. The person who is against God cannot be right with God. Next slide. For if we are against God, then God is against us. It cannot be otherwise. God cannot be indifferent to or complacent toward that which is the contradiction of himself. His very perfection requires the recoil of righteous indignation. And that is God's wrath. You see, God is good and just. And the punishment of the wicked is not simply God allowing them to experience the consequences of of their own lives. There is something more. Indeed, God's perfection requires something more. God actively punishes them. The way of the wicked will perish. That perishing is ultimately judgment from God. Now, friends, I know that this is indeed a hard word for many to hear. But I want you to consider something. I haven't done detailed study on this, but my impression is that the book of Psalms actually speaks about God's wrath and God's judgment more than anywhere else in the Bible except the words of Jesus. Think about Why is that? Why is a book that is so comforting to many people filled with images of God's wrath and judgment? I think the answer is this, that the Psalms talk much about God's glorious perfect, sovereign, holy nature. The Psalms revel in that nature. Read Psalm 145. That's one of my favorites. It's at the end. It revels in God's nature. And the Psalms are also, as we saw, honest with the reality of evil. And if you revel in God's glorious, holy nature, and if you're honest with the reality of evil, you're going to naturally talk about what God will do to that evil. A perfectly holy God will punish sin. Sin is an assault against God's perfect character. And that character, God's character, is too great for him not to vindicate. But there's another reason why the Psalms talk so much about God's judgment and wrath. And that's because it is deeply comforting for believers. Believers, you need to know that the sins committed against you will be paid for. Either by Jesus himself or by the people who committed them. But they will be paid for. Now, I think in our modern society, we would like to think that we are above such things. We don't need sins against us to be paid for. But as one theologian put it, that only works for well-to-do people living in the suburbs of the West. In the blood-soaked lands of Rwanda and Cambodia and Germany and Russia, that idea will not stand. Our sense of justice is woven too deep into our natures. When sinners get away with sin, we know something is wrong. Something in our nature then cries out against it. No, no, no. That's why the Psalms cry out for God's judgment. May the enemies go down alive to the pit, they say. How long, O Lord? C.S. Lewis suggests, and I think he's right, that if those passages that and speak of God's judgment, seem uncomfortable to our ears, it's not because the people back then were less advanced than we, but rather because we take sin much less seriously than they. 
if we really understood the horrible nature of sin, which we will when we contemplate the absolute goodness of God, if we really understood it, we would cry out more for God's judgment. We would say, come, Lord Jesus. But you see, that poses a problem. You see, if God's judgment is against sin, and if at the end of the day we are all sinners, what hope do we have? What can we possibly do? Well, notice with me the very last verse of Psalm 2. Go down to the very end of Psalm 2. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Let me read that again. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Now, I admit when I first read that psalm, the concept of refuge does not seem to fit Psalm 2. All along, we are talking about obeying the king, submitting to the king, or the king's wrath is kindled, and therefore we must do him homage. It doesn't at first seem like the kind of king that we want to, or even could, take refuge in. But we actually don't fully understand the identity of that king until we get to the New Testament. This king is God's son. This is the Lord Jesus. And before God establishes him as king on his holy hill, he first allows King Jesus to receive the full wrath for sin. Jesus actually stood in the place of sinners, but not in the Psalm 1 sense in which he sinned along with them. Rather in the sense that he receives the judgment in their place. God's righteous wrath is poured out on him. And get this. The king bore the penalty that his subjects deserve for their rebellion against him. And he bore it willingly because he loves his rebellious people. And friends, that's why you can take refuge in him. So if you're here this morning and you don't have, you have not found refuge in him, Well, friends, I encourage you to seek him now. Come to that king and be forgiven. Trust that Jesus died on the cross for you. Please understand that taking refuge in Christ does not mean saying, okay, well, now I'm going to strive to be a really good subject of the king, and hopefully at some point he'll accept me. No, that's not taking refuge in him. Rather, taking refuge in him is admitting that you do deserve his wrath, and yet trusting that he took it for you in your place. And believe on him. No one who ever comes to him will be disappointed. All who seek will find refuge. And then after you've come to him, be baptized. Demonstrate to the world that you take his death for you and that you follow him, that he is your king. But notice something else here as well. This Psalm Psalm 2 also says, Ask of me and I will give you the nations. And in in light of the New Testament, we understand that to be The Father giving the nations, people from all nations, to the Son as an inheritance. Those from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue will take refuge in this King. And they will be gathered around and will worship Him for all of eternity. And the Psalms consider it normal that if you have experienced the life-changing grace of the King, that you will then open up your mouth and speak about this reconciling grace to others. That you will be the king's ambassadors. That you will urge others on his behalf, be reconciled to Christ while there is still time. 
Psalm 51 says, it's the prayer of David, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Friends, when was the last time you spoke about your salvation to others? If all this is true, if evil is real, if God's word is the authority, if there is judgment for sin and refuge in Christ, if all that, then why aren't you speaking to others about this loving, gracious king? Maybe at the end of the day, you don't really believe it. And friends, that is why God has given us the Psalms. They don't merely tell us the truth, but they lead us into an experience with the truth that our faith might grow. So come to Jesus and find refuge in the one who has given himself for you. And then give yourself to him and to his word that you might experience refuge in all its fullness and that you might bring others in with you.